because I am good at three things. Fighting, screwing, and talking baseball. Now, I've already done one of those today, so what's the other one going to be, huh? Happens to be a coincidence that you just happen to be on social media, see me on. You click, you give me a shout. It's the first time you're ever listening to me. Thank you. You can, if you want, comment on the Facebook or uh, Periscope feed. Or give the show a call, 732-364-3598. Now, the last show we did was a little bit, on a little bit of a somber note. And I just wanted to touch for a minute or so. Um, anybody that's contributed to help uh, Jasmine and JJ's cause, of course, um, the victims. You know, JJ, two-year-old boy, was murdered by his father in a bombing in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, I do appreciate appreciate anybody that's checked out the GoFundMe page. Um, I just wanted to finish off about stuff like that because I, I did a show on, I think it was the first day of the year, New Year's Day, and we spoke about the importance of acknowledging violent acts, which unfortunately are happening a little too much in this country, whether they are gun-related, whether they are bombing, whether it involves murders and the loss of innocent lives. And we have a kind of a statement that we have. And I guess the theme of the show today is going to be rhetorical or rhetorics, because I'm going to touch on this topic and mention this word a couple times today. You know, we feel as long as something is not impacting us, then that, you know, simple emoji of putting it out there and saying prayers is enough. And in some cases, it isn't enough. In some cases, it's just kind of shooing the topic away, saying, yes, I do feel bad, but it's not worth it for me to invest any more of my time in. And that's the way a lot of us feel. You got a hurricane that's going on in Florida now, ravaging a part of the panhandle in Florida. People's lives are at risk. People's homes are being ruined. And the unfortunate thing about it is these are lives that are never going to be the same again. But the natural response is to say, hey, prayers to everybody out there. And this is, it could be coming from somebody in the, the Northeast. This could be somebody coming from the West. This could be somebody coming from Canada that doesn't feel any impact of this potential storm. And the same thing happens with suicide bombings or shootings. As long as it's not in our area, there's a comfort that we naturally feel when we are feeling bad. Now, I'm not going to question the compassion that people have, because I think people take care of a lot in regards to their money. People are very good when it comes to support and discussing serious topics like this. So I, I, when it comes down to it, I believe that there is enough compassion in people. But when it doesn't quote unquote hit home, if it isn't your family, if it isn't your close friends, if it isn't your loved ones, if it doesn't happen in your hometown, you tend to have more of a basic reaction to it as opposed to a serious and concerned one. Now, now, once again, you had that shooting in Long Branch on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. That was close to me because that's right by where I worked. I looked at the crime scene there was, you know, they had the tape up there and the police officers and the all the different vehicles, the emergency response team. That was something that was very visual, was very close. You have this bombing in, you know, Allentown, Pennsylvania. This little boy gets killed. I got a chance to meet the girl's mother, so I saw it on a different level. And I just think when it comes down to it, you know, we have certain types of compassion. 
but in some cases, it's not the same compassion as if it was happening to us live, as if it was right in front of our face. So moving on, I did want to touch a little bit on the Giants game yesterday. And like I said, I don't want the passball show to be about, hey, what was the latest recap and what happened in the world of sports? So I always want to turn every little topic that we talk about into something that is more general and less time sensitive. So there's a thought process out there, a team like the New York Giants. And once again, I'm not a Giants fan. I'm not a Giants hater. This is a football team that, let's be honest, this should get thrown out there a little more, is 1-5 this year and is 4-18 and in their last 22 games. Now, you can't say that there's anything going right when you're 4-18 and in your last 22 games. We talked about the Cleveland Browns and the possibility of them having success this year. They're sitting here right now at this moment at 2-2-1-1, and they're coming off of two seasons where they were 1-31. and So you can't say that you're on your way when you're 1-31. Similarly, you can't say that you're on your way to success and prominence when you're 4-18 in your last 22 games. There's no way you could do that. So I'm going to get back into what's going to be the topic of the day, and that's rhetorics. You know, something that is rhetorical. And fans do this all the time. It happens in all different sports. You have a sports team that you love, that you support. If you you bleed blue, and that's what you say. Go G-Men. And you're a huge Giants fan, and that's what you love, and you wear your passion. You wear it on your, you know, the inside and the outside. Things don't go well. Your team's one in five. There's no way that the Giants are competing this year. There's no way that the Giants are going to make a run to the playoffs. Where do you go? Yes, I live right now. So you're looking at a situation where you can either not watch the games the rest of the season. You could either focus on what you think is going to happen next year. Or... You can just try to find something else to do. Now, the easiest thing to say, hey, I'm a diehard Giants fan. I care enough about the Giants. I want to root for them. I want them to do the best that he possibly can is to go the route of play younger players. And once again, it's rhetorical. Once again, it's rhetorics. It's let me feel better by saying this team is heading in the right direction. Let's play a younger quarterback in Kyle Laletta. Let's call some guys up from the practice squad. Let's take every single veteran that's on this roster and sit them and play younger players. So the thought is that this time next year, the team could be trending in the right direction. And then the other part of it is, who cares if you lose the rest of the games? There's 10 more games left. You lose the next 10. You finish 1-15. You get yourself the number one draft pick and have an opportunity to hopefully take the best player in college next year. I just don't believe in any of that because I don't think any of that is necessary. Each team handles itself differently. The Giants are a more now team, and it's unfortunate. When when you're about now and you're one of the worst teams in the league, and the Giants at 4-18 and in their last 22 games are one of the worst teams in the National Football League over the last year and seven weeks, it's a fact. There's no way you could get around that. There's no way you could make an excuse to say that there's a reason for that. It's just you're a bad football team. So to say, hey, play the younger guys, in certain instances it works. 
if the Giants at some point decide that they want to take a look at Kyle Oletta, the rookie quarterback from Richmond, I don't have any issue with that. But this thought that you're just going to play a bunch of young guys the rest of the year sounds very rhetorical. And it's just a cop-out. It's a cop-out every single time that a fan has a losing team. Hello, Janet. Hope everything's going well. Now, I, I just don't, I don't like that thought process. I think each team needs to manage itself differently. The Giants went through a change in their power structure, a new general manager. They have a new coach. And neither of those guys are going anywhere at the end of the season. So they got to figure it out. They got to figure it out the best way that they feel they can figure it out. Okay, well, maybe we should tell that to Rayman because he practically bankrupt a casino if he was a retard. So moving on. Next thing I wanted to get into is you got Major League Baseball on a series of manager and general manager searches. And I don't think a lot of them are going to take precedence over the playoffs that we're seeing now. We got the League Championship Series starting today. Milwaukee hosting a National League Championship Series game for the first time in, I think, about seven years. I think the last time they played the NLCS was when they played the Cardinals in 2011. And then, of course, you got the... Astros and the Red Sox starting tomorrow in Boston. So the winners of these two series obviously going to get themselves together. You're going to see some good baseball. You obviously have the Red Sox trying to build on their eight World Series championships. Uh, you got the Brewers who have only been to one. And you look at a, a series of things that could happen over these games. Because I really do think you're blessed enough to have a bunch of good baseball teams. Not a lot of people know a lot about the Brewers. But this is a very offensively driven team, but a team that is also driven by analytics. One of the common denominators of the baseball postseason this year. All four teams have a certain amount of emphasis put on analytics. You got the Dodgers, you got the Red Sox, you got the Astros, you got all teams that really have put a lot of different things out there. And a lot of things that they want to do from behind the scenes to crunching numbers. And there's no coincidence that teams that are more empathetic or put more emphasis on the numbers, which a lot of people hate. A lot of old school baseball fans say, why do you do it? You, you have talk about the Yankees who were just eliminated this past week, and they, they put, in some people's minds, too much emphasis on analytics. I think that's wrong. Unfortunately, you need that. You need that sort of balance in baseball as it exists right now. And when you look at the couple teams, the three teams out there in Major League Baseball, that are very far from the playoffs, not only that, but are having a change in their hierarchy or bringing in a new general manager, they all have one thing in common. They're all teams that have not put enough emphasis on analytics. And you're looking at the Baltimore Orioles, the New York Mets, and the San Francisco Giants. Coincidentally, and for all different reasons, are bringing in different general managers. And they're going to have to go from outside the organization. All the decision has been made by all three of those teams. And I would expect in each one of those situations that a more analytics, analytically driven man is going to be running the organization or woman. You know, Kim NG. I don't know how to say Neg or NG. However, her last name is pronounced is going to attempt to be the first woman general manager in Major League Baseball history, and I'm 100% in favor of that. I think it would be a great opportunity for her. I think she's a very knowledgeable baseball person and I think could run an organization. So we're looking now at the thought process from old school 
what you're seeing, especially when it comes to managers of Major League Baseball, you got a lot of managers from the old school, the Buck Showalters, the uh, Mike Soshes, who are now out. And odds are they may not find another job as a manager in Major League Baseball. And I think that says a lot about how the game has changed. And I think it, baseball has always been, for 150 years, it's been a game where it's been about keeping up with the times, keeping up with the trends, keeping up with what has worked for teams that are winning. And there's no coincidence that the four teams that are left in Major League Baseball are extremely analytically driven. And other teams need to start catching up. And I expect the City Orioles and the Mets and the Giants make similar moves to bring in younger, more data-driven people to run an organization. And you know there's going to be issues with the Mets. Fred Wilpon kind of reminds me of that owner in Rookie of the Year, where he just, you know, and I remember the old-time character, his, his, uh, the actor, his name is escaping me right now, but he was also in uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. He was also in Home Alone. But he's a, a very distinctive actor if you saw his face, but he was playing the owner of the Cubs in Rookie of the Year. And... You know, you could just tell he didn't have a sense in the times. $3 for a hot dog when he tries to pay for four hot dogs with a dollar. And that's really where the New York Mets and Fred Wilpon kind of represent themselves right now. They're years behind. They're not emphasizing analytics enough. And they seem to be running the organization in a primitive way. And the question is, you could ask from a player standpoint, and maybe there, there's enough talent on this roster with a couple tweaks that they could be competitive next year. But if that is the case, they're going to be a little bit foolish long term. And I do think you're going to need a restructure of their organization to emphasize numbers, to emphasize strategy, to emphasize analytics a little bit more if they're going to be successful for a series of years to be able to sustain itself over a long period of time. If they can make a run and make the playoffs in 2019, it may not necessarily be the best thing. Now, we can talk about the differences in sports when it comes to rebuilding or reconstructing a team. It doesn't always have to be that drastic rebuild. It doesn't have to be that tear it down to the bottom, get rid of every single good player, and start over and stink for four years. And then hopefully in that fifth year, you're going to have enough good players. You're going to be able to build something that is going to sustain itself for years and years. It's not always the case. You could build something in the short term. Look at what the Yankees did. They had one trading deadline where they went to town, traded Andrew Miller and Araldis Chapman and Carlos Beltran and got themselves Gleyber Torres and Clint Frazier and Justice Sheffield. But they also had a very good farm system. They also were doing a good job developing players. And I look at a team like the New York Mets, and I look at a team like the San Francisco Giants and the Baltimore Orioles, and the one thing that all three of those teams have in common, in addition to not being so analytically driven, is they're not getting their players through their farm system and ready to play Major League Baseball when they move up. And it's unfortunate, because you want to see players, especially in the day and age that we live in right now, Minor league games are happening all the time, so if it's on a local front, if you live close enough to a, a place where a certain minor league baseball team is going to play, you know, younger fans, older fans, they're going to be interested in watching the players and maybe take note of what they think of uh, Mickey Moniak 
or, you know, you look at some of the guys that were drafted over the last several years and watch them as they develop. But certain teams are getting these players more major league ready. Now, the easiest thing to say is that the talent that exists with, let's say, an Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge's is that much better than most of the people that are going to come up through the minor league system. That may be true, but there is also has to be some credit that goes to the New York Yankees and our organization for making sure that he was ready, making sure that he spent a certain amount of time in each level of the minor leagues, and when he moved up to a certain level, it was his time. You look at what's happened with the Mets, Michael Conforto being rushed up to the majors in 2015. Brandon Nimmo, for a couple of years, being back and forth between the minors and the majors, not necessarily ready. Ahmed Rosario coming up at the end of 2017, and for a good part of the, fir the first half of the 2018 season, didn't seem like he was ready to play Major League Baseball. Now, sometimes you could say it was a coincidence, but when it happens over and over again with an organization... You do have to analyze the structure of the organization and how they're preparing players in the minor leagues. So I think the Mets, I think the Giants, and I think the Orioles, three teams that are all coincidentally struggling, that are having, having a hard time. In fact, all three of those teams had pretty high expectations going into the 2018 season. There's no question about it. The Giants were a borderline playoff team. They went out there and they got Longoria, they got McCutcheon. You know, the Mets were in a position where they're coming off a down year, but we're expecting to bounce back. Baltimore Orioles were a little bit aggressive towards the end of the offseason, adding pitchers Andrew Kashner and Alex Cobb. Now, I know they didn't help. They weren't very good this year. But the expectations were you put that with their offense, and they could at least be a 500 team. I know a very competitive AL East. And obviously, we all like to jump off the cliff when it comes to, you know, our preseason expectations, the Orioles got off to a bad start. You just say, hey, they're just simply a bad team. They were always a bad team. We always knew that they were a bad team. Truth is, you didn't. Truth is, is that you looked at different teams and said they were supposed to be bad. You looked at the Tampa Bay Rays, just like I did, and thought they were going to be bad. You looked at the Oakland Athletics and thought they were going to be bad, just like I did. So just admit it. But the hard thing to do is when you have a fall from grace, when you have high, ex high expectations, when you're expecting to win this year, and all of a sudden you realize that not only are you not going to win this year, but you're a pretty bad team, you know, is it time to rip it down? And you're looking at three distinct instances, which there may be three different ways that these teams decide to go about it. I think the Orioles have already embarked on their rebuild. Some of the players they traded last year, some of the players that are going to be free agents this year. There's certainly going to be a lot younger team last year. The expectations of the Baltimore Orioles, unfortunately, for a team that lost 115 games in 2018, is probably going to be less than it was this year. They might lose 120 games. They're almost certain to lose 100 games this coming year because they're not going to be real aggressive in a free agent market. They're going to want to play young players. They're going to want to potentially look to move a couple veteran pieces that they possibly can they're at the beginning stages of a rebuild. They're the Houston Astros of 2010. They're the Philadelphia Phillies of 2013 or 2014. They're the New York Mets of 2011 or 2012. And they're, and they're accepting that. They're going to have a new general manager in there. And they're going to have a new uh, manager in there. And I would hope that they try to keep up with the times. You look at the fact that they were an old team. They're going to get younger. They're going to probably use numbers a little bit more than they've used before. And then finally, the most important part, 
is the fact that they are going to accept the fact that they're not going to be good for a little while. And it sucks. It sucks when you're a fan. Like I said, New York football giants, things might not be good for a while for this team. And I know a lot of Giants fans sitting here at one and five don't care if they win another game the rest of the year. But once again, every team has got to treat itself differently. What's best for that particular organization? Once again, this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Um, just a quick note, this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew an age. Our exclusive Beachwood Asian produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you'll find at no beer at any cost. So as we get to this segment on Friday, like we do every week, we're going to do a little bit of football picks. And actually, we're just going to skip the music today. We're going to get right into it. I'm going to pick five random games. And I'm not even going to pay attention to which games that I pick. Because if you look at the record sitting here two and three last week, I think we're sitting at, was it, 9, 15, and 1 of our losing records. A team that is, uh, sorry, a series of picks that is looking to rebuild. I'm not going to spend much time talking about that. But we'll start. First game, we got Tampa Bay and Atlanta. And Tampa Bay is going to be traveling to Atlanta. Atlanta is in a little bit of a tough spot. They're sitting here at 1 and 4. Unexpected. This is a team that's supposed to be a postseason team. This is a team that went to the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. But I think they're going to have their way against Tampa Bay. Now, you look at Tampa Bay, and obviously the first couple weeks were Ryan Fitzpatrick as their quarterback. Maybe Jameis Winston, that is off his suspension, is getting a grip of his team of where it stands. There's a lot of talk that maybe the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are a little bit better than people thought they would be. But I think the line is what stands out to me. Atlanta favored it by three, needing a good performance at home. And basically in a spot where they could save their season with a win. Now, their season still might not be going anywhere. Two and four is not necessarily a ticket to playoffs. But I think they're in a spot where they're going to be motivated enough. And the line is only three. So first game is going to be Atlanta minus three at home against Tampa Bay. And I'm going to slide right over to the next game. And it's going to be Seattle at Oakland. And Seattle is actually favorited in this game. And that kind of scares me a little bit. Because I look at the Seahawks and you look at the tradition of the Seattle Seahawks, right? It's the fact that when they're on the road, they're very beatable. When they're at home, they have that 12th man, their crowd. Maybe they inject some artificial sound into the stadium to make it imposing on its opponents, the people that come in. But I look at Seattle, and I I don't really know what to expect out of them this year. I think this is a team that has struggled in games like Arizona. There's been times where you think, because of their quarterback, they could put up some points. You think there's enough continuity left in their defense, but the loss of Earl Thomas, I think, is going to hurt them in spite of the distractions that he's providing. So I I believe that Seattle's in a position where they're going to have to go out there and really play a perfect game if they're going to have an opportunity to win week in and week out. And by doing that, they'll have a chance to make the postseason. But this is a team that has disappointed me. 
They don't have very much left on defense. Offensively, Russell Wilson's being asked to do a lot. His offensive line isn't that strong. They don't necessarily have a proven running game. And, you know, Doug Baldwin's playing hurt. They don't really have a good wide receiver core. So I'm going to go upset here. I think the Oakland Raiders will step it up. I'm getting two and a half points. The Raiders are playing a game at home. And I believe this. I believe if the Raiders are going to show you anything this year, they should be able to win a home game against Seattle. It's Seattle going through the tough times that they're going through. So give me Oakland plus two and a half at home against Seattle. Next game, we're going to go Carolina, Washington. Now, I bet on Washington last week, and I lost. I thought on the road against New Orleans, I was going to go against what the expectation was going to be, that the Saints were going to win this game in a romp, and obviously I was wrong 15 times in 25 games I've been wrong this year. So, you know, it's something that is a trend. I can expect myself to be wrong when it comes to picks. In fact... You know, the money that I'm losing this year is probably enough to make somebody go bankrupt. That being said, I'm still going to bet on pro football. Carolina, coming off of a emotional win, a last-second win against the Giants at home, one that probably wasn't expected. I think this is something that can propel them into a good spot. And I like them on the road in Washington. Now, Washington is one of those weird teams that every single time they can rule them out, they go out there, and they have a big performance. So I wouldn't be shocked if this game was close. But I think in the end, I think Carolina could pull away, win by three or five or seven points. And you're looking at one team that is heading to the playoffs, one team that is not likely headed to the playoffs. So give me Carolina plus one at Washington. Next game, we're going to go Arizona and Minnesota. Now... Minnesota is getting a big line here, and this is why I'm going to go against them. The last time the Minnesota Vikings had a 10-point or more spread when they were favored was when they were favored by 17 at home against Buffalo. Not only did they lose that game, but they got blown out. And I'm going to look at two similarities. Number one, the expectation is that the opponent was not going to be ready to play. Number two... The opponent was playing a rookie quarterback on the road. And I looked at Josh Rosen over the last couple weeks, and I don't think he is necessarily dominated. He hasn't been Sam Donald. He's not in the, in the league of, let's say, a Baker Mayfield yet. But I think he's going to get better over time. And he's waiting for that game to kind of stand out and have his moment. And I think, I mean, I just believe in conventional wisdom, especially what happened when the Vikings were hosting the Buffalo Bills then I think the Arizona Cardinals can keep this game close. I don't think they're going to win by a considerable amount. They're not going to blow the Minnesota Vikings out, but I think they could keep this game within 10 points. So I'm going Arizona plus 10 at Minnesota. So the next game, and I'm just taking games as they are randomly scrolling across the screen. It's going to be the Indianapolis Colts against the New York Jets in New York. And here's what I'm going to go by. I don't know. Every time the Jets have a big win, especially over the last two years, they lose the next week. They had that big win against Detroit where they scored all those points and you thought the Jets were back. It's Sam's team. This is a, 
a team that may overachieve this year. Maybe they compete with the Patriots. Maybe they, they could finish 500. Maybe they could compete for a playoff spot. And then they lost to Tampa Bay. A great win last week against Denver. They played a, probably a perfect game. Their defense looked good. Their offense looked good. Isaiah Crowell ran for over 200 yards. But I don't trust the coach. And I think when you win big games in the National Football League, and every single time you have a letdown the next week, that is an indication of your coach. And your coach, for whatever reason, not getting your team prepared. Maybe it's not his fault, but he's responsible for making sure the team is ready to play that next week. So I look at the Indianapolis Colts, and I look at Andrew Luck, and I look at the fact that maybe Jets fans are feeling high coming off of a big win, coming off of a resounding win, coming off of a dominant win. I think they're going to be let down. Colts getting two and a half points on the road. They still got Andrew Luck. I think I think the Colts will win this game decisively. So give me Indianapolis plus two and a half against the New York Jets. So I took five games this week. Atlanta minus three at home against Tampa Bay. Oakland, minus two and a half. I'm sorry, plus two and a half at home against Seattle. Carolina, plus one against Washington. Arizona, plus 10 against Minnesota. And Indianapolis, plus two and a half against the New York Jets. We'll get those picks up on JohnPLA.com in case you want to take a look. Throw your own opinions any way possible. Last thing we're going to talk about as we get into the Nobody's Listening segment of the program, the time of the show where I feel I've been on long enough. If anybody has tuned in, more than likely you've tuned out. Obviously, the diehards, the people that have absolutely nothing to do, are going to be sitting there and still watching at this moment. And I thank you for that. So as we get into the nobody's listening segment of the show, it's time to talk about something that, once again, is rhetorical. And we move on to the fact that that is the theme of today. We talked about the rhetorical prayers, putting your hands out there, sending that emoji saying, yeah, I really care that there's something unfortunate that happened and I send prayers your way. But if it doesn't happen regionally close enough to you, if it doesn't happen close enough to you where you feel like it is quote unquote hit home, then nobody cares. And you say you care, but you don't really care. You got the rhetorical, hey, if the season's not going well for the New York football giants. Play the young guys. Like all of a sudden there's something that's valuable and all these young players are going to come in there and play and make an impact going forward. My final point about rhetorics today. I believe when you have family and when you have friends, when you have coworkers, when you have acquaintances, it's very positive and it's nice to wish somebody a happy birthday. And if you're close enough to somebody and you see them and you are you know them pretty well, you see them fairly often, and at the very least are going to see them at some point within the next year, I believe in, in a happy birthday. And for anybody that's sent me a happy birthday, each one of them is something special to me and I thank you for it. Unfortunately, with my setup, my connections, 
to get everybody as much as possible engaged in the show and to build a listenership. I've had to go out of what I've considered my natural network. I've had to go past just family, past just friends, past just coworkers, past just people I see every day casually, past acquaintances, and like I said, past friends. And the goal has been to grow the show, to get people out there, to get more people engaged in it. And in doing so, you have to do that with a series of people that you don't know. But the reality is that people say things for the sake of saying things. And I don't like that. I will never say happy birthday to somebody I don't know. And I know 365 days a year. It's somebody's birthday. Every day is somebody's birthday. And you know what? Maybe I should open a show every single day and say happy birthday to somebody. I remember that Blue's Clues skit when my daughter was a, a little girl. And we were watching the you know Nick Jr. channel. It says every day is somebody's birthday. Which is fine. And you know what? Maybe I should open a show every single day and say happy birthday to somebody. I mean, I believe... And make it sure that, you know, everybody that is close and you say happy birthday to him, I'm totally cool with that. But I compare it to that, you know, rhetorical thing that people do when it comes to holding a door for somebody in a store. There, there's the door that's swinging back at somebody and you're using sound judgment if you make sure that that door doesn't smack the person behind you in the face. But everybody knows of that person that stands there for like minutes and holds that door for somebody, waiting for somebody to come by, and in their own mind saying, hey, I did my good deed for the day. There's things that are done for a reason, and then there's things that are done that I just don't understand. So when you're looking at, you know, 2,500 people and 3,000 people, and I'm glad, listen, I'm glad I have a lot of people engaged in the show. You know, and there are many different mediums that people do listen to the show. But let's, listen, if you don't know me, just accept the fact that you don't know me. Because I don't know you. That's my last point we're going to make today. A little bit of a recap of the show. Giants sitting there at one and five. Obviously, their season's over. The thing that has to be pointed out, four and 18 in their last 22 games. And that has to resonate pretty hard to Giants fans. They have to... Just accept what's going on right now, that they're just not a good football team. Now, I don't know what you do. We have that rhetorical, all right, the cop-out that's played young guys. And I don't know how that's necessarily going to help the team. They just got to find a way to play better football. They were, they, You saw a good team play yesterday and a bad team play yesterday. You saw one team that won the Super Bowl last year and a team that played that went 3-13 and last year. That's what it looked like. You know, what you would expect for a team that won the Super Bowl playing a team that went 3-13 and last year. I don't know how you figure it out. I really don't. I don't have an answer. I don't know exactly what the proper way to change this is. It would start by winning a game. But I do remember the same thing going on last year for weeks upon weeks. And you're watching and you're like, every single game they seem to be losing. Well, if they win next week, it'll get a little better. Okay. But at some point you get to see them win. And you can't sit there at one and five. You can't even sit there at two and five. We can't talk about this team being competitive unless they're a game or within a game or two of 500. And I don't see that happening. 
And like I said, what's the solution? What do you do in a spot? I don't really know. You run your best team out there. Kyle Loletta, I don't know if the Giants look at him as a quarterback in the future. I don't know if the quarterback in the future is on the New York Giants roster right now. You got Odell Beckham, who obviously cares a lot about winning. You know, he's going to get frustrated. You can expect the same thing out of Saquon Barkley or any of the prolific Giants players. Olivier Vernon, Landon Collins, Janoris Jenkins. A series of players that probably have expectations they should win. And I get a little worried every time you see a series of winning type of players, players that expect to win day in and day out, and they're part of a losing team. I don't know how they handle that culture. And it's been proven before that a lot of times those players don't handle losing so well. You got the MLB GM manager search. You actually got six teams now that are looking for managers in Major League Baseball. The Blue Jays, the Twins, the Angels, the Rangers, the Orioles, and the Cincinnati Reds. Three teams looking for general managers, the Orioles, the Mets, and the San Francisco Giants. Touched a little bit about the common thing, the common thread of what's not working for the three teams that are looking for general managers. Maybe a little more emphasis in analytics. Maybe a little bit more of an emphasis in making sure that they're younger minor league players, assuming that they're scouted properly, assuming that the right players are brought in, are prepared for the major leagues when they get there. And it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. You obviously have the playoffs starting this weekend. Brewers, Dodgers, and Milwaukee today. Milwaukee Brewers have played a one World Series in 1982 when they lost to the St. Louis Cardinals. Dodgers have been there many times, including last year. 1916-1920-1941-1947-1949-1952-1953-1949-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1950-1